Do you consider the world declining as the third age declines in your book? And do you see a fourth age for the world at the moment? Our world? Well, the person my age, you see, is exactly the kind of person who's uh, lived uh, through one of the most quickly changing periods of uh, known to history. And that the world is a totally different place now. At a speed, everybody feels that. Anybody who lives over 70 begins to feel that uh, all through history. You can see that they do. But surely never been in 70 years so much. This call is being recorded. Aaron East. Hey, Chad. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Can you hear me okay? I can. Finally, we get to have a podcast together. I'm so excited. I know. I know. <laughs> it's been a long time coming, and I apologize. Um, oh, you're fine. I just, for listeners that don't know, Aaron East is our um, our very first intern at the Writers Colony at Dairy Hollow, and we are so psyched to have him um, on board. You've been doing so much already. And I'll let you tell more about that. But first, let us give us a little, um, tell us a little bit about you and who you are and where you're from. Yeah, so I'm originally from the Dallas area. Um, I grew up in a small town called Royce City, um, which is about half an hour east of Dallas. And um, I, you know, grew up and I was always very interested in uh, literature and language and I loved to read as a kid and all that kind of stuff. And it sort of led me down the path of um, doing, uh, studying English in college. And I ended up going to uh, Washtenaw Baptist University, which is in um, South Central Arkansas. Yeah. Um, where I got my BA in English and history as well. And, um, I sort of had, uh, I don't know, uh, not a come to Jesus moment or whatever, but I, I realized that I wanted to continue going to school when I graduated and I applied to the University of Arkansas um, to their MA program. Um, and that's where I am currently doing my MA in medieval literature um, wow. specifically. Now, so did you, did you take me? Did you take a break at all, or did you go directly from Washita Baptist to the University of Arkansas? No, I went straight from my MA to, or from my BA to my MA. Okay. So yeah, good. Straight through. Yeah, that's a major epiphany to be able to be like, you know what, I'm going to go to grad school. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the original plan was to go get my my PhD as well after I finished um, my MA, but I think my plan is sort of changed from there. I think I, I would like to actually just work for a while doing something. Yeah. I don't know what yet. Yeah. So what, um, I mean, thinking about that, well, first, let me ask you, what is it like doing your MA at, um, at the University of Arkansas? I mean, what kind of things do you do? Because I know you have students that you're actually teaching. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that's actually one of the probably I don't want to I don't want to um, out myself, but I think that's probably the the most valuable part of my MA so far is the teaching experience that I've got. Um, obviously, it's been kind of weird because of COVID. Um, so we've been doing online learning for this semester. 
Oh, really? But, okay. but prior to this, um, just getting in the classroom uh, was really great. It was honestly kind of weird at first because I'm not much older than my students are. Uh, right. I just turned 24 <laughs> in August, and right. I'm teaching freshmen that are 18 and 19 years old. So, you know, I have a little brother that's just uh, gone to college as well. So it's a little bit like it feels like I'm teaching people that could be my siblings. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit weird. Um, but it's been really good experience. And then as far as um, classes go, I've taken mostly um, medieval focused classes because that's my concentration. So I've, you know, um, learned about um, the formation of the the canon uh, in the Bible, uh, how the Bible was used by uh, medieval folks um, sort of to push political agendas and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I could, I could get sort of specific, but, um, yeah, go on. Please. Sort of like the basic. Yeah. And aside from that, we've, I've also, um, taken, uh, one class I took with Dr. Uh, John Duvall was not necessarily strictly medieval, Um, But it got that sort of classification because we all we did all semester was read epic poetry. So we were reading Mm -hmm. the Iliad, the Odyssey, Mm -hmm. um, Beowulf, Mm -hmm. um, snippets of Paradise Lost. uh, And really just sort of that was a a MFA program centered class. So it was more focused on um, translation and translation theory than it was on uh literary criticism or anything like that um but that's sort of one of the the outliers the other classes that i that i am taking and um have had to take have been very sort of specialized um i took a um, gynocentric chaucer class which is basically just a feminist chaucer class uh a which is a what chaucer class a feminist a feminist Chaucer class. Oh, so we're gotcha. focusing on fo- focusing on women in Chaucer. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's sort of what I've been doing. What attracted you to medieval literature? Yeah. So that's actually uh, a rabbit hole that you might not want to go down for because it's a very I, simple I answer. It's also, <laughs> it's also a very, it's a simple answer, but also not. Um, so I grew up um, loving, um, I loved reading The Hobbit when I was, you know, a kid. I loved reading um, The Lord of the Rings. I actually, this is, it's my my favorite book um, that I've ever read, um, mainly because it's not that I find it like the most elegant or something like that but as far as reading experiences go that was the first uh, reading experience that i had where i became totally absorbed in something yeah and i was able to just sort of disappear inside of a world um and i know a lot of people have um felt that way about um tolkien's works and and that sort of thing but it went a lot farther than that for me it was less about just being able to get lost inside the world, but it was like the feeling of authenticity that he was able to create because he Mm -hmm. founded his writing on um, 
historical and ling- in historical and linguistic bases. Mm. Um, and that's what made that so appealing to me. And so I thought, you know, what that's sort of what I put in my application materials to the U of A. I was like, you know, I part of why I'm interested in doing medieval studies is so that I can get a better understanding of what informs one of my favorite authors, but also just um, uh, a period in history that I find very interesting because it is alien in a way. We don't really think about, you know, what people would have thought six or 700 years ago right? anymore. So that's the short answer. Um, and actually, I did a lot of research in undergrad on literary criticism of Tolkien and that sort of stuff. I, know, I wrote like a 30-page um, research paper for a history class. Um, I say I, it was, I kind of, I kind of wormed my way into doing that because it wasn't strictly history. It was more like literary history. Um, right. <laughs> but it was, it was one, of, one of my favorite things that I got to do in college. Yeah. So tell, so, so go into the long story. Yeah. Well, the long story is that I was a little bit obsessed with, uh, not only Tolkien, but, um, his buddy C.S. Lewis, um, yeah. It was it was very impressive to me to see a group of people at, at at Oxford and in the UK that seemed to have such a very clear vision of the kinds of stories that they would want to write mm-hmm. and to actually execute that and to have it take off the way it did made me I don't there was just something about I think their artistic vision that really captured me and it was more than just Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure how many folks are aware that Tolkien actually has uh, a posthumously published book um, that his son edited called The Silmarillion. Oh, really? Um, I didn't know that. Which uh, it's it's the entire mythology behind the world that he created, essentially. Oh. Uh, just sort of laid out there and it's sort of like his bible essentially he made uh he made a text that works like the bible does for i think uh like contemporary christian audi- christian audiences yeah um and there again there there's just so much richness and it sent me down this spiral like spiraling path where you know he makes references to finnish mythology and to norse mythology and he makes references to Celtic mythology, and he sort of blends all of these different cultures so seamlessly that part of the fun mm-hmm. was trying to pull them apart and learn about them individually at that point, which is essentially what I've been doing for the last like seven years or whatever it's been of you know my I, it's an obsession it's not healthy, but it's okay. <laughs> I think it's probably a great obsession to have. There are a lot worse ones. Um, uh, Well, and so in thinking about C.S. Lewis and, and, um, and Tolkien, just in the sense of when you go deeper, I think into it, there's, they're not only writing, they're writing. Well, I know C.S. Lewis, for instance, writing a very, writing a story that has a real, 
has such depth of meaning beyond just the story itself. You know what I mean? Like right, right. his, his beliefs, uh, his theology. Um, did you, do you find that in Tolkien as well? It's, that's actually, I think what draws me more to, to Tolkien than to, to Lewis is his um, refusal almost to put his faith at the fore. Um, Tolkien was a very devout Catholic, um, but he was very adamant that he, and you, this is reflected in um, a few of his letters and in, uh, and in some of his essays as well, that um, putting a religion that maybe he held in, he would call our world the primary world, um, mm. And putting putting a religion from our primary world into his secondary or his created world, uh, which is Middle Earth or um, the whole of the, of the whole of creation, there it sort of breaks the spell of um, enchantment. Right? We call it the the willing suspension of disbelief. Right. But um, he really calls it entering a different world, and I think. That that appealed to me more than what C.S. Lewis did, and I love Narnia, uh, and I love his essays, and I love his um, biographical sort of memoirs. But um, essentially, what Lewis wrote was uh, Christian allegory in the form of like fables, and that didn't appeal to me quite as much as seeing. So that I think I don't know what the, the difference between. Um, Lewis and Tolkien for me is that you have Lewis is instructing people on the principles of Christianity through an allegory, whereas mm-hmm. Tolkien's story itself portrays the very heart of that faith for him, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. So the story would you say that the it, exercise of faith? Right. It's the experience of living, living, right? Mm hmm. And I, for me, that was, and especially since I, it's it's odd because I did grow up in a fundamentally um, Southern Baptist home. Oh, I did too. And, and so, um, my my grandfather was a was a member of the Southern Baptist Convention and a and a pastor at a small church in my hometown. And what always I I found it funny is that I was getting almost, and this isn't to say that I, I'm not advocating a lifestyle or a belief system, but I found it funny and I always did that um, I was getting instruction on faith from a Catholic when I was raised in a, a, a Southern Baptist <laughs> home. Yeah. Yeah. So that was always fun. Yeah. Well, and you know what, thinking about as we're kind of talking about the Bible and you, you had mentioned, you know, thinking about middle medieval literature and the formation of canon and, and such. Um, when you think about people in that time, there, there were not very many literate people, were there? So that's actually one of the things that I was curious to learn, you know, what was like, what was actually like the, cause that's like a, I don't know, like a trope that we hear at this point where like people in the medieval period were illiterate. They didn't really know much. Yeah. Like they, like, I've always heard the reason why they, you know, the churches are built the way they are, you know, the stations of the cross is because people couldn't read the Mm -hmm. Bible. And so they had to illustrate it. 
but go ahead. Is yeah, and so it, I mean, as far as like as far as I have learned, and as far as I know from what I've read so far, those are like, I mean, that seems to be confirmed at least uh, at least by my professors and the reading that I've done is that really the people that were reading and that were well versed in in literature and the Bible as literature were um, the nobility and the clergy. So clergy, the monks, um, yeah, and then yeah, and so it was really those people that were involved with, del- and it was the job of the church to deliver that message to the lay people. Right. Um, so, you you know, that's, the, that's one of the problems I think that a lot of people have with the medieval church is that you have, like, the, the interpretation of scripture was left up to um, only a certain sliver of the population. At least that's one of the problems that I was like, ah, that I fingered when I first started learning this stuff. I was like, so that's kind of an issue that these people can't read the stuff for themselves. Right. You know? <clears throat> right. Um, well, uh, control, but, it's, it, there, it makes it there, it makes the, the church, quote unquote church, very powerful in the way right. in which it can influence um, so many things. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. Well, um, so I'm thinking, I want to get to what you are thinking as far as your career, because I want to tell everyone, um, Aaron has a podcast called Composing Careers, and we're supporting it, and it's going to be live, and um, you can check it out very soon. Um, you can find it. You can already find it right now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and probably anywhere you, you listen to your podcast. So that's um, Composing Careers with Aaron East. And so one of the things I really appreciate about the podcast that you're doing is talking to people who have maybe you know, uh, graduated from school with English degrees and what have you and finding out like what, what they're thinking or where they're going as far as work and their passions and things. What are you thinking? It sounds like you really enjoy teaching. So it sounds like a PhD at some point in your future is probably, is probable. Um, but is there something else that you're going to do while you t- kind of take a break or? Is yeah. There- so I think I'm sort of, this is again, you know, the, like the best laid plans of mice and men, you know, off, off you go astray. <laughs> but um, my plan was originally to go get my PhD and, and just finish it out, which at this point in my life sounds like absolute hell. And I don't I don't know why I would have done that to myself. <laughs> um, but um, I sort of, so I, I uh, I am engaged, and I think part of the driving decision for me not to pursue a PhD um, was considering my future spouse and the fact that um, she's actually in the process of applying to law school. Um, and that sort of entered my mind that you know, hey, this is this would be very difficult for to have two people in school simultaneously, yeah. and it's just like financially making that feasible. Yeah, is. Uh, difficult and I started you know, over the last I think probably year year and a half I've started to realize that you know I have marketable skills that I have developed in teaching and in doing schoolwork, but it's just figuring out the right ways to market those skills and mm-hmm. and I say market in the sense like it's not like I'm out there like selling myself on a street corner it really is just the idea that 
you know, but, how does how does research skill from a classroom translate to maybe producing content for XYZ company? Yeah. In the real world. It's a and, job market. Um, yeah. And so I think that's and, and kind of in line with the podcast, that's what's got me interested is that I um I wanna talk to people that have work experience outside of just academia. Not I mean in I mean both inside but and outside of academia. And as well as people that are writing creatively, you know, for their own enjoyment and the enjoyment of others, but also writing professionally. Um, because I think in terms of making a living, I think that that's something that a lot of people um, don't see from an English degree. They don't see that there are viable options for employment. And that's something that has sort of encompassed my entire experience um, as a student in an English department, both at the undergraduate and the graduate level, it seems to me like both my undergrad and my grad programs have had to place a really strong emphasis on the fact that like you have marketable skills. And the only thing that that says to me is that if you're having to constantly remind people that they have marketable skills, it means that they probably don't feel like they do. And so somewhere along the way, you failed to tell your students that they have skills that apply in a workplace. Right. And and you're kind of, at least this is the way that I felt, and this isn't to say that English departments are a bad place or that they're non, that it's not productive or it's not worthwhile because it is. Like, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't love it and it wasn't worthwhile. Right, right. Um, but there is something to be had by way of uh, increasing people's awareness of jobs that are available to people that have skill with language and experience with language. Um, and the so critical sort of, thinking involved in that. I mean, I think the critical yeah. thinking piece is huge, you know, for, for, um, yeah. for a job. And I think maybe what's on my radar in terms of when I graduate this, this coming spring, I think the jobs that I'm most, most interested in looking for sort of fall in line with actually what I'm helping Michelle with here at the Writers Colony and potentially you as well. I know I haven't had a ton of experience doing, and I also am not a, an avid user of social media, um, but even doing basic, um, doing things on the show like um, editing grant proposals and yeah. grant applications. And you have been amazing. Stuff. And the press releases, you are like top of the line. We're like, we can't let Aaron go. We need, his, <laughs> we need him to prove all of these things and help us write these things. But yeah, so that stuff is, I think what I'm interested in is um, maybe continuing down that line. And I actually worked for a nonprofit as well before I came. So before I moved to Arkansas for my MA, I worked three summers at a nonprofit in my, uh, in my area. So I, I don't know, nonprofits have always just been a, an interesting place for me because they serve an important function uh, for people that need help. And for people that, you know, maybe need a hand um, fulfilling certain aspects of their lives, but don't yeah. have necessarily the money to do it. Yeah. Um, so I could definitely see myself going that route and um, doing, you know, writing up um, grant applications and yeah. producing content for maybe a nonprofit or something along those lines. But I'm also currently working part-time at a bank and um, I'm, be I you know my my supervisors at the bank I work at asked me to edit documents for them as well 
occasionally. So it translates to a lot of different places that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, te- the teaching aspect of it, and you, you were talking about how um, the, pe- the students that you're teaching are, you know, close to your age. Do you find mm-hmm. that there's a, a disconnect or do you find that you, you really identify with them or do you feel like you kind of have to demand a sense of respect? Or what's, what, how do you view, because you were just there, how do you view your students in relationship to what you're doing now with teaching them rather right. than kind of being one? Yeah, I think this is something that I've, I'm adamant about. And I've, I've only had, I guess this is my third semester of teaching that I'll have under my belt when I'm done. But one of the things that I told myself from the beginning was that I didn't want my students to feel like I was not approachable. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of that, and this is something that they told us in our, um, in our time in orientation for the grad program and for teaching was that you need to conduct yourself with some level of professionalism. And that included the way that you dressed and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But um, I, I didn't, I never was the type of um, teacher to walk in and like, you know, shorts and a tank top or something, but I had no problem coming into class and, you know, jeans and a t-shirt or jeans and a flannel or something more casual um, because it, it, and this is the way that I viewed it when I first started was that if I walked into a classroom and I'm only 20, you know, at the time, 20, 22, turning 23, um, my students are going to look at me and go, this guy is, you know, he's young. Why does he feel the need to dress up and pretend like he's this hot shot? Um, (laughs) You know, and like you're putting on a a mask. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, it was like, um, you know, part of, part of it was the way that I dress. And the other part of it was the way that people address you is really important. I feel like as a teacher and, one of the first things I told my students was, you know, don't, you don't have to call me. I was like, my name is Aaron. Um, you don't have to call me Mr. Um, definitely don't call me professor because I'm not a professor. Um, you know, I'm not doctor. I don't have a doctorate. So you don't have to call me Dr. East. I was like, you, I would honestly just prefer that you call me Aaron. Just call me by my name. Um, yeah. And so, so far, I think I've only had one or two problems with students maybe um, taking advantage of that sort of casual approach that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, it's been pretty okay. It, it has been kind of weird still though, because I think um, at the University of Arkansas, what I've experienced is that my undergraduate experience was exceptional in the sense that I had very close interaction with all of my professors because I went to such a small school. How um, many students is Washita Baptist? Is it three thousand? Yeah, we had a we had around we had around two thousand students. Okay. Um, and I think they still do but their enrollment is increasing every year now. I mean they're 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 doing okay in terms of enrollment, but I think the largest class I had in my English department courses um, was probably 12 people. Right. It was very, very close and uh, tight knit. And 
anytime that you needed to talk to a professor, they were available to you. Um, any questions that you had, you could also just, you know, reach out. And, you know, you saw your classmates every day. It was like walking around a high school, really. Right. Um, That's how my... Because you see, see everyone so often. Yeah. Um, and so it's different. It's, it's different. Yeah, it certainly is. And that was one of the things that I had to get used to coming to um, Arkansas was that, you know, these these students that I have now, all they know is the big state school with a capital S, you know, right. It's like, that's the authoritative institution. This is, this is the big one, right? This is like Arkansas's main university. Right. Um, and I think what I found is that, and this isn't a slam on the U of A at all, because it's, it's a good university and uh, you get as much out of it as you want to put into it. Essentially. Right. Just like any good, any, any program worth its salt. Um, but what I found lacking is a sense of closeness um, to my students. And especially so with COVID going on, because I don't have access to them. Yeah. Like I can't, um, I can't sit down with them and talk to them about their work that they're having trouble with or help them workshop a paper that they're doing. Um, and are you teaching a, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt. Are you teaching a course no. um, that is a required course or is this an, an elective mm-hmm. course? Yeah. So I'm teaching two sections of composition one, which is a required course. Okay. Yeah. That's a difference. Credit <laughs> from high school. So, um, I mean, it's it's difficult, but not in the sense that the material itself is difficult. It's more difficult to, you know, it's hard to make people excited about Comp 1. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. Well, um, what about you? Do you have any interest in creative writing? Have you written stories at all? Or is that something? I, I've done a little bit. I've, in undergrad, I... I actually, well, so like back in high school, I used to think I was really cool. And I was like, I, you know, I'll keep a journal. I'll journal and make notes of the stuff that I'm reading that I think is really cool. Um, you know, like everyone does that, you know, thinks that they want to write um, in any capacity. And that, I mean, it was fun. Like it wasn't, I'm not making fun of that at all. It's just one of those sort of, when you're first starting out doing something that you, that you enjoy, it's always like you get super excited and, you know, you kind of, at least I did, I kind of like lost sight of like the work and the effort that it goes into creating something. And it wasn't until I got to college that I then, um, and really like my junior and senior year at OBU, I started to sort of get like any kind of creative itch again outside of like writing, you know, um, writing academic papers and that sort right. of thing. Um, and I actually ended up writing um, a few poems that I submitted. So we did like our, my university, um, they did like a, they had like a small literary magazine they would publish every spring. Um, and I ended up sending in some of the little poems that I had written to that. And um, they get reviewed by, um actually by students and they're all anonymous submissions so um it was actually some of my peers that ended up reading my stuff and putting it in so i submitted some poems and i submitted a a short story that made it in there 
Oh, cool. Um, Which is pretty neat. You know, it's a, it's like, it's not a, the hugest, like, or the hugest, the biggest deal in the world to get published in, you know, a small literary magazine that your university does. But it was kind of cool to say, oh, yeah, like, I'm in this. My name is on that. Yeah. You know? Well, that's published. One, I mean, you know, that's great. Yeah. What was your story so, about? It was actually about, a, it's actually kind of fitting that it's Halloween. It was about an incredibly, uh, terrifying nightmare that I had when I was like 16 or 17. It was actually, it's actually like one of the most vivid dreams I've ever had in my life. And I sort of really wrote, wrote a, it's kind of, it, it honestly reminds the way that I wrote it reminds me of, um, um, Edgar Allan Poe's kind of style. Oh yeah. Um, what was it? What yeah. was your nightmare? <laughs> I have, you, so was, you want to tell me you don't have to i mean i guess that's kind no of i will it was, it was super weird um it was it was i had this so my family used to live out um they've moved a lot around my hometown but we used to live in a sort of like out of the way neighborhood that was kind of out in the country a little bit mm-hmm. and i had this dream that i was in my in my bedroom uh and but it was sort of like it was different it was my bedroom you know it had, it was sort of like this navy blue walls and it was very like colorful and uh in my dream the room was entirely whitewashed so the walls were white the bed was white sheets were white um no windows nothing whatever um and i was like looking down on myself in the third person uh, oh, wow. sleeping yeah and there were these like there was a shadow that crawled out from underneath my bed, like in the shape of a person, basically. And it crawled across the, the floor and across the walls and up the ceiling and down the other wall and back underneath the bed. And then at some point after it went back under the bed, um, this is like the, the, the scary part was the fact that the next time that the shadow quote unquote shadow reappeared it was its arms on either either side of the bed coming out but they weren't shadows anymore they were like leathery scaly clawed hands and i was like oh that's like that's neat it was intense i was like oh man that is intense but it was fun i it was i'm not one to like i also don't remember a ton of my dreams so the fact that i still remember that i was like that's probably something to remember. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time. I just wanted to say again, composing careers is Aaron's podcast. Please check it out. The first episode's already live and it's called the marketing guy. So, um, please Mm -hmm. look for it and we're, and we're going to post it as well. So, um, any last thoughts, Aaron? No, I will say that that episode is, uh, it features um, one of my good friends who uh, writes like it sounds like he writes content for a marketing agency. So um, check it out if you have time. Yeah. Do you think that social media will continue or, I mean, this is, I just was thinking about, you know, the marketing guy and how he was, uh, Bill, is it Bill? No. What was his name? Will. Um, do you think that social media is going to continue an upward tra- trajectory as far as, I mean, cause you, you yourself said um, that you don't really, you don't really use social media that much. And I've actually found that I've talked to um, other young people that are like, yeah, I just don't, I just, I'm not on social media. And I'm like, 
You know what? This may be, I mean, I think it's a great thing to not be on social media personally, <laughs> although it's part of my job. Yeah. Um, do you think that we're going to see a wave of kind of an anti-social media movement or do you, what do you, do you have any visions as far as that goes? I'm just curious. I don't know if I have visions. I do. I will say that just speaking from my own experience, part of my issue with social media and the reason that I have stepped away from it more um, is that I just, I get tired of wanting to constantly, it's, it's that com like everyone has this feeling, but instead of like actually enjoying things that you're doing, the urge to constantly take pictures of it or to write about it and just right. or something is re it's really annoying. Like I don't want to have, when I'm like at a theme park and about to ride a roller coaster, I don't want to think about taking a picture of myself on the roller coaster. I just want to ride it. <laughs> right. You know, I don't, yeah. I will say that I, I have seen a lot more of people my age that are, I, and I think it's something that comes with maturity too. Um, I think that a lot of people as they'll, as they start, growing up and you know they get through high school and they get through college and they get out into you know um the working world i think that people will will just sort of naturally move obviously there's outliers but i think for the most part people will start to step away from social media more and more except for you know one or two platforms that they need to connect with their family members or close friends every right. now and then right right um I don't know. That's where I don't think there's like some, I think there's going to be some major pushback, especially in the near future against stuff like, uh, especially like Snapchat. I see that going down real quick. Uh, but I could be wrong. Who knows? Yeah. It's, it's an interesting time. And, um, the power of social media over the past, however many years has been <clears throat> crazy. And it's just kind of, it was kind of opening Pandora's box, and now you're like, how do we get this all back in? Yeah. It's not really, it's a lot of it, some yeah. of it's really good. It's nice to be able to see pictures of family and friends on Instagram. I love it. You know, that's, I right. love that part of it. But the other part of it is just, it can just be so, I just think toxic in so many ways, just to our, um, yeah. to our psyches. And there's, our, and there's also just the fact that, when you give people access to talk to anyone that they know at any time, um, people have like, I'm not saying that people are inherently flawed, but like people have certain weaknesses and it can lead to some very bad decisions. And the, at the end of the day, yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, that's sort of, that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, interesting. I just, you know, I thought about it and I thought, you know what, I should ask Aaron. Okay. Well, again, it's so awesome having you as our intern, our very first intern at the Writers' Colony at Dairy Hollow. And we're just excited to have you and just have been so impressed by all that you've contributed thus far. And, um, and so I'm so excited to be able to introduce you to our listeners here. And again, um, point them towards your podcast, Composing Careers with Aaron East. Um, check it out for sure. Um, yeah. Have a great day. Thanks for talking. Thanks for finally. Thanks, I'm uh, glad that we <laughs> connected finally. I know. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Have a good day. All right. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Right Now at the Writer's Colony. Again, in case you don't know, my name is Chad Gurley. I am the host and colony coordinator at the Writer's Colony at Dairy Hollow, located in the historic arts village of Eureka Springs, Arkansas. And I'm so glad you were with us today and listening. Looking forward to seeing you next week. Have a great day.